still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This episode is the last in an accidental trilogy. I didn't set out with the idea of doing another mini-series on the senseless deaths of women of a similar status at the hands of another angry and violent man. But they have all, at one time or another, been tenuously linked by the popular press with each other. The human mind tends to look for patterns in behaviour, and when data is compared at very basic levels, a type 1 error can occur. The resultant apophenia detects a pattern where there is most likely none. This is an understandable error from the viewpoint of a journalist. The facts available in the first few days of a murder investigation can be full of attention but very light on details. For the obvious operational safeguarding and not giving too much information to attract the cranks and false confessors, but also giving enough to help the public remember and hopefully aid the investigation. Copy needs writing, column inches need filling, and who doesn't want to be the journalist who identifies the prowling serial killer amongst us all? A link, no matter how tenuous, is still a link. Or is it? Janice Weston was murdered changing a tyre by a roadside near her car. Penny Bell was viciously murdered in her car. Both were successful, thoroughly modern women whose murders had a connection involving a car. The modus operandi of the two attackers was quite different, although it seems likely that both women knew their own killer, but the car is not the linking feature, and the two cases ended up being disentangled in the press over the coming months. But some ideas linger, no matter how incorrect they are. There is a striking difference between the linking of Janice and Penny and that of Penny and the subject of today's appeal. There's even a suspect shared between them. But the suspect is stronger in today's episode than the link to Penny's murder. She, like Penny and Janice, was a successful businesswoman high up in her field. Another woman killed by another angry man by her car. Jean Bradley, 25th of March, 1993. 1993 was the year where the popularity of the Manchester scene was beginning to fade as the Britpop scene was fermenting. Manchester had produced a wealth of musical innovation and an aesthetic as typified by the baggy fashion trend. Baggy flares, worn by bands such as the Inspiral Carpets, Happy Mondays and the Mock Turtles, became an identifier of the subculture, as did loose-fitting ethnic tops, sunglasses 
and the adoption of the fly fishing hat. This was mostly due to the drummer of the Stone Roses, Alan Rennie Wren's choice to wear one constantly. It's a handy thing to remember for later, that fishing hats were quite popular at the time. Jean Bradley had been working as an operations manager for a company based in New Bond Street, London. New Bond Street is in the heart of the Diamond Quarter. The number of jewellers, goldsmiths and gem traders there is quite amazing. It's a very opulent area of central London and the company Jean worked for was ideally located to deal with their customers who were mainly companies moving from the United States of America to the United Kingdom. Jean had not been with the company for long and they had only recently moved into the heart of London. This had meant that Jean had to plan her new commute from her home in Crowthorne, Berkshire, where she lived with her longtime companion, Nicholas Osborne. They had recently visited the area before the company moved to locate a suitable parking spot. Jean was very particular about her car and didn't want it to be damaged, so had located a quiet suburban street tucked away along the maze of streets in Acton and West Ealing. Her decision to use the space in front of 63 Gunnersbury Gardens at 7.30 that morning was a normal thing. A quiet area with nice suburban houses, most of them are the mock Tudor white panel and black mock timbers beloved by 1970s sitcom writers. It gives the area a certain ambiance, stable, upper-middle management types. Peaceful, normally. That evening, Jean made her way back to Acton Town Station. Her route had been the usual trip through the network of tunnels and escalators, walkways and platforms of the Piccadilly Line. The Piccadilly Line is the dark blue line on the world-famous map of the London Underground, as designed by Harry Beck in 1931. For those with a technical interest, the official Piccadilly Blue is Pantone 072. This line runs from Cockfosters in the northwest to Acton Town, where it splits into two separate lines with terminals in Heathrow Airport and the other in Uxbridge, Middlesex. As with almost all of the underground lines in our great capital, the Piccadilly is a curious mix of ever-evolving technological developments in ticket dispensing and security with the crumbling remnants of the original builds. Here and there are tiny little signs of the steamy and sooty past of those tunnels and the triumphs and tragedies they've witnessed. Jean's route from Green Park Station would have seen her travel through Hyde Park Corner, Knightsbridge, South Kensington, Gloucester Road, Earls Court, Barons Court, Hammersmith, before arriving at Acton Town at around 7.20 that evening. I've included the full list of stops because it isn't clear if Jean had been followed or was accosted at random, so for the sake of inclusion, they're all there. On her way back to Acton Town Station, Jean had stopped to buy two cans of drink. As with all metropolitan areas, vendors of food and drink are readily available throughout the system. They weren't particularly fantastic in the early 1990s, as most of them were grubby newspaper vendors and overpriced everything, 
but as part of the commute, it was the convenience of most value. Jean exited the station through the wide entrance lobby. The station had been designed in 1932 by architect Charles Holden, a follower of neoplasticism. His very starkly European design of large rectangular blocks of brickwork, glass and concrete were, still are, some fine examples of the design movement. Her journey would have seen her walk out of the station and turn left. Here, she would have either continued on that side of road past the shops towards the junction of the A4000 and Gunnersbury Garden, or, as is more likely, Jean would have used the zebra crossing, which is not far from the entrance, before turning left towards a junction. There are two possible routes from this point. The first continues on the northern side of the road with Jean heading south, or with Jean taking the right turn into Gunsbury Crescent and then walking along the same side of the road, past the well-appointed houses. I suspect Jean would have felt quite safe along this route, even at night time or dusk, as the conditions would have been in late March. The streetlights would have produced enough illumination for safety, but obviously a woman walking alone will always feel vulnerable. We really have to address that, we really do. No woman should be scared to walk alone. Her walk would have followed this route around the left-hand bend, after which there was 110 metres, or 361 feet, straight pavement to the next junction. This was a right-hand turn into Gunnersbury Garden, with very similar, if not slightly better, houses. There was 75 metres, 246 feet, before the left-hand sweep of the road. From the apex of the sweeping left-hand bend, there was roughly 40 metres, or 134 feet, from the right turn into Carberry Avenue. From the junction of Carberry Avenue and Gunnersbury Garden, Jean was just 30 metres, around 100 feet or so, from her car. It would have taken her a few minutes to walk to it. Had she been followed from any point along her route? Or was the killer nearby in the shadows? As Jean unlocked the car and opened the rear passenger door to place her bag and the item she was carrying inside, her killer struck. And struck and struck, again and again, in a hail of blows. Bravely, Jean fought her attacker, but the much taller man dominated the injured and defenceless woman. Before we continue, we need to understand what the situation was like. It was around 7.30 in the evening, in March. The trees along the road would have been in first leaf, and, on that day in Carberry Avenue, the sun rose at 05.52 hours and wouldn't set until 18.23, with dusk extending the day until 18.56. Therefore, at 19.30, there or thereabouts, it was fully night. Vision, however, was good. There was no fog. But there were nighttime shops and cars, as well as streetlights. 
It was a fair day even for March, with mild and dry conditions around Ealing and Acton. The roads that evening were full of commuters, including a carpenter from the Republic of Ireland, who happened to be in the area. His route home that evening took him along Carberry Avenue. He passed as Jean's attacker was still attacking her. He could see that a woman was on the ground, so made an emergency stop in the road and jumped from his cab. He called to Jean, Are you okay, love? He describes the attacker as tugging at the woman on the ground and, quote, standing all over the woman. This point is often mistaken to mean that the killer had his feet on Jean, as he was stabbing and wrestling with her. But in the Irish idiom, it means to stand over, not literally on. The carpenter challenged the man, who was taken aback by the interruption and seemed unsure of what to do, before turning and walking away. The carpenter went to Jean's aid. The noise of the disturbance in the street, as Jean had screamed for help and in alarm, many of the local residents came out to help, administer first aid and call for an ambulance and the police. At the same time as the carpenter was challenging the man, a woman and her son were passing in a white Ford Escort. As the carpenter saw to Jean, they followed the suspect. They both described him as being very tall, taking very long strides. His appearance is most notable. He was wearing a white or light-coloured jacket with what is described as a sou'wester. Sou'westers are mostly associated with nautical activities and particularly the fishing industry. Their collapsible oilskin hats with a back that is noticeably longer than the front to offer full protection to the neck. Often they have the front turned up to form a gutter to channel water away from the face. They're really practical bits of clothing for working on the sea, but they're certainly not the type of attire you'd see in London. Unless, of course, he wasn't wearing a sou'wester, but a fly fishing hat. At the top of the show, I mentioned that the Manchester scene was beginning to run out of steam, but it was still widely popular, as was the baggy look. Fly fishing hats have long been a sensible choice of headwear for many, and in 1993 that popularity meant that you could encounter someone wearing one virtually anywhere. I know this sounds like a silly or irrelevant point, but if everyone's been looking for a sou'wester and disregarding the fashions of the time, then that might be enough of a hole in the identity of the perpetrator for him to continue to evade justice. The carpenter and the woman in the escort both describe the man in the same way. Late 20s to early 30s, 6 feet to 6 feet 3 inches tall, with a long striding gait and long arms. He was carrying a black plastic carrier bag with something hard inside it, which is believed to have been the murder weapon. His face is described as thin, gaunt even with a day or so of stubble growth. His eyes seem to have dark circles as if tired, and his complexion is pallid. He was said to have a very cold stare, the kind that could, quote, stare right through you, end quote. 
However, it must be remembered that he had just attacked a woman in the street with the intent of seriously wounding, if not killing her, and then been stopped by a passing motorist and challenged physically by that person before leaving quickly. It seems like his complexion could be due to massive amounts of adrenaline constricting his capillaries, although drug use is also a possibility. The bag he carried was a black plastic carrier type with gold flower emblems printed on it. A scrap was recovered from the scene and it had a section of writing on it that said manufactured in the United, but the scrap finishes there. It could have been any one of the various United countries around the world with whom we trade, or it could have been bought in by a tourist. The bag itself is fairly nondescript, although it is the type that was especially common in the lower tier clothes shops where the owners were trying to save every penny and purchased pre-printed bags from a cash and carry warehouse. It may seem like almost nothing, but it was just about the only physical evidence police have. The woman and her son continued to follow the attacker in their escort along Gunnersbury Gardens. While she was tailing the attacker, the carpenter had left Jean with paramedics and residents, got in his van and had resumed pursuit. In Gunnersbury Garden, the carpenter caught up with the woman and her son in their car. He drove at speed up behind them, flashed his lights and blew his horn. The woman moved out of the way to let the van pass. Shortly after passing the escort, the carpenter pulled over to the curb a little way ahead of the attacker got out of his cab and challenged him again. When the woman saw the carpenter get out of his cab, she told her son to go and ring the police. Her son then got out of the car and went to call. Mobile phones were still only the preserve of the faded yuppie and the wealthy, but it's never been made clear where the young man was supposed to make the call from. The confrontation between the carpenter and the attacker was brief, but the bravery of the guy is astounding. With a typically fearless Irish spirit, he said, quote, All right, mate, you've just attacked a woman back there. Do you want to try it on with me now? End quote. This unexpected turn of events caused the attacker to stop in his tracks for a second or two before raising his hand and advancing towards the carpenter. Very sensibly, the carpenter backed off a little, and the man took it as an opportunity to escape. Running off into Gunnersbury Lane, just off the North Circular Road. The pursuit wasn't over yet, as the carpenter now gave chase on foot. The woman in the Ford Escort was also still in pursuit. She managed to get ahead of the attacker and watch as the carpenter ran along behind him. The woman then went home to see her son, so presumably they were almost home when they were dragged into this dreadful circumstance. She then describes the attacker and the carpenter running off toward Acton Town Station. In 1993, police were appealing for everyone who witnessed the chase to get in contact. The carpenter stopped several cars, including one driven by a man described as a Rastafarian 
although that might be a misnomer, and it may well have simply been a black man with dreadlocks. He was driving a white golf at the time, and being stopped by a breathless Irishman in the dark would have been quite unusual. The carpenter didn't wait for the driver of the white golf to act before continuing his pursuit. At this point, the chase had been going on for almost a mile. The pursuit continued along several major roads, and then into quieter side roads. At one point, the carpenter said that he thought the attacker believed that he had given the man chasing him the slip. The carpenter had been ducking behind parked cars and trees, whilst maintaining eye contact on the killer. The route the two took hasn't yet been disclosed, but as the latter part of the chase reveals, they must have, at some point, gone along Bolo Lane before turning down either Enfield Road or Osborne Road, as the next confirmed location in the pursuit is when the attacker went into South Acton Estate, a sprawling complex of several low-rise blocks of flats and a network of roads and side streets with a wide open grassy area between the blocks, with footpaths running across it. The time now was just a quarter to eight, a mere 15 minutes since the attack on Jean had begun. The paths that ran through the estate were known to have quite a few people on them that night, but not all of the witnesses came forward. At the edge of the estate, the carpenter almost caught Jean's attacker, who began to run when he saw the same man was chasing him. The chase continued across the grassy area, through the trees to the play park on the far side of the estate. Here, there are metal crash barriers to protect pedestrians from any accidents. Rather than vault the fence, he ran around the barriers, across Avenue Road and into Church Road. At the corner of Ragley Close, the attacker gave the carpenter the slip although he wasn't free yet. A quick word about Ragley Close. These days, the original block of flats have been demolished and new buildings stand in their place now. So the original escape route now no longer exists. A resident overlooking the Ragley Close entrance saw what the attacker did next. The witness describes the man as appearing to be agitated and moving backward and forward in the doorway he was hiding in. He describes the man as wearing a cream three-quarter length parka jacket with jet black hair, black trousers which appeared to be too short for a man of his height as, quote, they were flapping above his ankles, end quote. The attacker ran into the block nearest to him and the witness, much to his credit, came out of his flat and crossed the walkway to look down on the exit point from where the attacker had entered. According to the witness, he seemed to be working out the best way to get out of the estate. He was still carrying the black plastic bag, which is believed to have contained the knife used. The witness describes the man as having a very tight grip on the bag, which he held in his right hand. Shortly after this, the man was seen in Buckland Walk, and heading towards Acton High Street, the A4020. 
After this, the attacker made his escape into the pedestrians and traffic of early evening Acton. It was a mile and a half from the location of the attack. Whilst her attacker was making his escape, Jean was being tended to by the ambulance service, who desperately tried to stabilise her. But sadly, Jean lost her life due to massive blood loss on the quiet suburban street she and her partner Nicholas had chosen for safety reasons. Her post-mortem revealed that Jean had been stabbed more than 30 times with an 8-inch knife. The investigation that followed was extensive and necessarily invasive, but all of the people close to Jean were soon eliminated and the attack became one of the very rare occurrences of an unmotivated, violent murder by a stranger. The perpetrator has never officially been caught, but there are a number of men who committed very similar attacks on women around the same time. Although police dropped any link between the murder of Penny Bell and Janice Weston very rapidly, as the circumstances were very different, and although the horrific attack on Penny bore striking similarities, the M.O. was quite different. I have said in the past that these violent men all seem to lack any originality in their attacks, but maybe that's because of the well-worn trope of the inventive psychopath who taunts police with clues and different methods of killing that only a rookie and a soon-to-be-retired long-toothed cynical detective can solve. The reality is that murder is a brutal and artless act fueled often by rage or sadistic sexual urges. All of the men who could be considered, as they were active at the time of the killing, have been subsequently convicted of other crimes. The first of these despicable lowlifes to mention is Peter Tobin. Tobin has long been suspected as the figure known as Bible John due to the murders of two young women in the Barrowlands disco in Scotland in the 1960s, although there are some very serious doubts held by many about that. Tobin was known to be an unpredictably violent man, reigning terror in his home, like so many of these men do. That isn't always the case, as meek, mild civil servant and homicidal slayer of gay men, Dennis Nielsen, proved, and this was further reinforced by Green River killer Gary Ridgway, both seemingly respectable, quiet men. I can only imagine how fetid their consciences must have been. Whilst Tobin was proven to be responsible for the death of many young women and disposing of their bodies in a variety of ways, he most likely is not the killer of Jean Bradley, as his height is 5 foot 10, and all the witnesses describe him as being 6 to 6 feet 3 inches tall. Tobin was also known to use blunt force trauma to incapacitate his victims, whereas Jean's killer had struck with a flurry of knife blows. The next in line to have a cursory glance at is another repellent little man. This time, named Colin Ash Smith. Ash Smith was convicted of several serious but non-fatal attacks with a knife and while serving that conviction was convicted of the murder of Claire Tiltman. Claire was a year 11 pupil, so 16 years of age. She had been raised in a loving home 
that had successfully reared her into a confident young woman with her whole life ahead of her. When Ash Smith, a twenty-something male living at his parents' address, viciously and entirely without provocation, launched into a deadly attack with a knife. He used that to stab Claire nine times. Poor Claire lost her life in the alleyway where Ash Smith had dragged her. Claire was murdered in 1993, just four days after her 16th birthday. In his summing up of the case, Justice Sweeney described her thus, quote, She had an engaging and lively personality and was extremely popular with a wide circle of loyal friends. End quote. She was the only and very much loved daughter of Linda and Cliff Tiltman, with whom Ash Smith and his parents were friendly through the Royal British Legion Club, a sports and social establishment that provides some income to the Royal British Legion. That is a charity that supports military personnel and promotes the remembrance of the armistice and the dead of the two world wars and other more recent military conflicts. It's generally a very worthwhile organisation with good people as members. Ash Smith was an only child too. His parents, Diane and Aubrey, were both Labour Party councillors and Diane had been mayor for a term. Small town mayors in the UK are really only window dressing or public relations officers in a way. They wield no real power, but it's good to show the community that their council recognises them. They're generally not voted into power like politicians. The plebiscite have no part in their creation, as it's all by councillors voting for the various candidates put forward by their respective political parties. It's a position of standing and trust. People in the role are supposed to behave with dignity and be respectful. As you can imagine, human fallibility gets the better of a lot of them. In 1993, Ash Smith wasn't a suspect and wasn't interviewed about Claire's murder until 1995, when he was arrested for another stabbing. He denied any involvement, as did his parents. That human fallibility I mentioned was to end up with Aubrey Ash Smith going to prison for perverting the course of justice. This came about when it was discovered he had taken a knife from the home, had dismantled it, then boiled it before throwing it away. The sole reason for this was to destroy evidence before their house was searched by police. I find it impossible to imagine being in that situation as a parent. The horrific scale of the conflict is clear to see. The child you've raised is accused of a truly awful crime and your instinct says to protect them as the British legal system is based on the principle of innocent until proven guilty. But if your friends have had their daughter violently and savagely ripped away from them in a senseless act of violence and domination of a young female, wouldn't your instincts also be telling you to help put that maniac behind bars. To go out of the way to destroy evidence is to tacitly say that you don't care about the others that might die to allow your family member to walk free. 
As a result, Claire's murder would go unsolved until 2014. It later transpired that Ash Smith had attended Claire's funeral with his parents and had worn the same jacket he was wearing the day he murdered her. He was later convicted of the kidnap, rape and attempted murder of another young woman. This time it was a 27-year-old woman he abducted at knife point from outside of her home in the same village, Swanscombe. He forced her to walk to a quarry where he sexually assaulted her, attempted to rape her and then tried to strangle her to death. Then he tried stabbing her in the back five times, after which he left her for dead. Mercifully, she survived. It was later found in his journals that he called this attack, quote, my masterpiece, end quote. It is a measure of how evil this man is by the fact that he carried out another attack in 1995 on Charlotte Barnard. This time, he was a few hundred yards away from where he murdered Claire. Again, despite his rage and use of a sharp knife to carry out the attack, he failed in killing her. Witnesses were sought and soon his car was identified as having been in the area at the time. And before long, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for the attempted murder of Charlotte. His arrest for Claire's murder came in 2013 and he was finally convicted and sentenced in 2014. He displays the necessary impulse, rage, power and lethal use of a bladed implement. But he was confined mostly to the small village around his parents' home. The final offender, and most likely person, to be responsible for this senseless attack is Robert Knapper, although there are problems with that theory too. Robert Clive Knapper was born on the 25th of February 1966 and is by any definition a monster. If you've listened to the rest of these shows, then you'll know I strongly dislike the moniker of Ripper being attached to any multiple murderer of women. And although he, before arrest, wasn't called that in the press, the pattern of offending, the escalation of violence, and the horrific mutilations he inflicted upon his victims certainly makes him eligible for the title. The home which little Robert was born into was a home beset by problems of domestic violence. His father, Brian, a driving instructor, would regularly violently assault his mother, Pauline, with the children present. In the home were three sons and a daughter, and they all witnessed their mother being beaten by their father. The family broke down in 1975, with the children being placed into foster care and given psychiatric counselling. Robert's treatment was to last for six years. This is an important thing to remember. He was deeply damaged as a child by the actions of his father. The separation of the parents of a dysfunctional family is often the best course of action, rather than inflict lifelong mental trauma on children. Even if the children aren't in the room at the time of the attacks, the evidence is normally clear for them to see, 
and children are exceptionally good at pretending to be asleep if the attacks happen at night. Most of the people who perpetrate these gross acts against the family often wear a thin veneer of respectability and present their families in some weird diorama of a happy and healthy family unit, despite the fact that immediately beneath that surface are deeply frightened children, angry at the injustices they have to endure and laden with untouchable and unquenchable guilt at being able to alter the situation or defend the parent being attacked. This dysfunctional example of behaviour can lead to a lifetime of poor choices, equally dysfunctional relationships, either with the element of violence coming from the grown child or they seek out a situation whereby they face the same feelings of impotence and due to the abusive parent forcing the family to lie to defend them, huge obstacles of trust. But the abusive parent doesn't care about that beyond their own entitled sense of self-importance. As the type of person who tortures, metaphorically and not, their family, simply do not have the emotional intelligence or empathy. The scale of the problem with domestic violence is shocking. Incomprehensible, really. Many of the children from violent relationships often do overcome the trauma and fight to build a happy and stable life for themselves, further reducing the power their abusive parent has over them. While still under the care of the mental health department, Robert Knapper would have two further situations that would cement a pattern of thought and behaviour that would be felt by hundreds of people over the years. At the age of 11, Robert Knapper was diagnosed as being a paranoid schizophrenic. I'm no expert, but that seems to be a very young age to diagnose a condition that is primarily evident in early adulthood and later. I can't find anywhere who the clinician was that diagnosed him, but if it were a clinician who had trained under an older professor or academic and considering that this diagnosis was made in 1977, when there simply wasn't the wealth of studies around the nature of paranoid schizophrenia or the delicacy of the diagnostic tools at our disposal today, there's a reasonable chance that the clinical expert may have experienced the Praycox feeling. Praycox is a Latin term that roughly translates as early flowering, early onset or primitive the Praycox feeling is a very curious condition that affects the mental health profession in terms of the diagnosis of schizophrenia and is the sense that a psychiatrist can tell, almost intuitively, within the first few minutes of meeting a patient, whether they have schizophrenia or not. There is much debate about this in the mental health realm, as the new tranche of experts seem to suffer with it less, and it's speculated that the diagnostic hunch that older experts have is a mixture of outdated methodologies and professional diagnostic biases. There's also a lot of misunderstanding about what paranoid schizophrenia really is and how it relates to crime. Mental health, or rather mental ill health, still carries a dreadful stigma with it, and instances whereby a mentally ill person commits a crime a violent crime against the person, it produces the type of rhetoric and headlines that put back the public understanding of the scale of mental health problems by decades. 
coupled with the common misunderstanding of schizophrenia as a medical condition where the sufferer has one or more minds or personalities, when in reality this confuses the matter even more. Schizophrenia is not multiple personalities. Indeed, even paranoid in the mental health field is a topic of much discussion and even greater misunderstanding from the public. The trope of, they're all out to get me, doesn't really explain the depth or the nuances of the condition. Schizophrenia manifests in many different ways, but the simplest way to think about it is an inability to distinguish between the internal workings of the mind, with the various thoughts becoming manifest in some way, hallucinations including olfactory, visual, oral, gustatory and so forth, which confuse the patient into being unable to distinguish between the different reality their illness is making and the reality of everyday life. There are other factors with it too. Extremely disordered thinking, irrational behaviour and false beliefs. It's a chronic mental health problem and is rare to resolve, often being a manageable condition that the patient and their families learn to live with. Childhood schizophrenia is a very rare condition. Difficult to diagnose and often life-changing. It's a really complex illness and the diagnosis often involves many people giving an account of the person's behaviour and a picture drawn from that. It's quite a subjective process. As someone with a complex chronic medical condition that can only be managed and for which there is no cure, I can only imagine the psychological impact of a diagnosis on a child. My diagnosis blew my ship, as it were, out of the water, and I can imagine that most children who get a diagnosis of a chronic condition would feel the same. Robert Knapper, however, seemed to enjoy his new status, proudly proclaiming to his father after diagnosis, quote, I'm mad, end quote. It must be remembered that 1977 was a much different place than 2018. Attitudes towards mental health were awful back then, with references to the funny farm and madhouse peppering the media and culture. People with mental illnesses were labelled mad, loonies, bonkers and every other pejorative you can imagine, openly. The sense of being different and in a separate category from the rest of society became reinforced in the mind of young Robert. Then the incident, which would shape this child into a sadistic killer, happened. Not long after his diagnosis, Robert and his family were on a camping holiday with family friends, when one of them sexually assaulted the boy. His abuser was convicted and sent to prison for the offence but Robert would be served with a life sentence that he would distribute widely. The results of the sexual abuse saw Robert become withdrawn, obsessively tidy and introverted. He began to bully his younger siblings and took to spying on his younger sister whilst she was naked. Exposure to abusive sexual contact in children often marks them, to a greater or lesser degree, for life. Sex is a highly potent and emotional act. When it's mixed with the anger and hatred found in abuse, where the sex act is about power over the victim coupled with the psychological stimuli, 
fear, confusion, misplaced guilt and sense of betrayal in the victim, it can produce a variety of outcomes, which are mostly negative in their long-term impact. Some people become staunch advocates for protecting the vulnerable from further abuses and campaign for tougher sentences for offenders and publicly accessible registers of the convicted sexual offenders. Others deal quietly with their trauma on their own or with counselling. Some self-medicate with alcohol. Others become very promiscuous because sex is meaningless. There are others whom repeat the abuse to others as their worldview of sex is corrupted. And there are those who seem to be unable to free themselves of the terrible burden of abuse and build upon it, escalating the level of sexual violence. By adulthood, little Robert, damaged by the abuse and labouring under the weight of paranoid schizophrenia, became Napper, the Green Chain Rapist. The Green Chain refers to a series of parks that stretch from Crystal Palace Park to the River Thames. It travels through the four boroughs of Bexley, Lewisham, Bromley and Greenwich. The Green Chain Walk is a 50-mile route, broken into 11 manageable chunks of green spaces made of parks and commons. Napper prowled these areas looking to attack women who were using them. He would often track them from a distance and for some time before confronting and raping his intended victim. The series of rapes that happened across the Green Chain area would account for 86 separate attacks. Whilst it is evident that Napper committed a lot of these attacks because he confessed to some of them, not all of them have been fully attributed to him. He first came to the attention of the police in 1986 following a conviction involving an air gun, although what type of weapon it was is unclear. Back in the 1980s, it was perfectly legal to purchase air weapons without any identification and the range was quite large, including pistol type 22 and 177 and BB shot firing types. Once you were over 16 years of age, it was quite legal to just go and buy one. These days, it's an offence for anyone under 18 to own one. It seems he was found in possession of it outside the boundaries of his house but nothing particularly of criminal note. The next time he came to police attention was a very different set of circumstances. Three years later, Napper confessed to his mother that he had raped a woman on Plumstead Common. His mother did the right thing and called the police. She detailed the claims her son had made and was surprised to be told there was no record of any such attack in the area when it was claimed that the assault had taken place. The police took no further action in investigating the claims. Had they bothered to follow up the investigation in more detail, they would have found that two months before Napper made his confession, a woman had been raped in her own home, a home that backed onto Plumstead Common. The forensic teams had been able to recover an excellent DNA sample from the victim but police didn't interview Napper at all. His mother, despite the police inaction, broke off contact with him, and the green chain rapes continued. There was a pattern emerging of attacks, 
with mothers with their children being the targets. He would attack the woman, physically and sexually, including rape, in front of her child or children. The first rape in Plumstead had seen Napa rape the mother with her children in the house, but had shut the door to the room where he raped their mother. In hindsight, we can see the pattern emerging from Robert's childhood, where he witnesses his mother being violently assaulted by his father. We can't really know what it means in his mind, and the trauma he inflicted on those families is incomprehensible. Photofits and a description of the rapist were circulated, and there were a surprisingly large number of people who identified Napa as bearing a very striking similarity to the rapist. He was questioned informally on several occasions and agreed to give blood. Twice. Both times he failed to show up to give his sample. He was then ruled out of the investigation due to his height. Six feet two. The witnesses reported that the rapist varied in height from 5 foot 7 to 5 foot 11. There was a major police investigation into the green chain rapes with a large number of detectives working the case. Whilst those crimes were being investigated, a murder occurred on Wimbledon Common that would shock and horrify the nation. 22-year-old Rachel Nickel was found having been stabbed repeatedly as she crossed the common with her two-year-old son, Alex. When found, Alex was crying and screaming, attempting to wake his mummy. It's estimated that the poor little boy had been with his mum for about 15 minutes before being found. Rachel's injuries were horrific and would have killed her quite quickly but the brutality Napa unleashed is chilling. He stabbed her a total of 49 times, with 46 of those being dealt with extreme force. He cut her throat so deeply she was almost decapitated, and he posed her in a gratuitously sexual fashion, having wrenched her jeans and underwear down to her ankles. The attack is calculated to have taken no more than three minutes. Napa threw Alex into the undergrowth when he started to attack his mum. Alex had struggled back to his mummy and found a scrap of paper to place on her head like a pastor to try and make her better. The love and compassion of a child in the midst of unspeakable horror. In the run-up to the fatal attack, the green chain rapist had been increasing in frequency and severity, but for some inexplicable reason, police did not connect the two events as the same attacker. Their focus fell on Colin Stagg, a man whom the police went out of their way to ensnare using a wide variety of entrapment techniques. Even when the police had two people in custody, Napa and Stagg, for the same offences, the police decided to wait for the outcome of the trial of Stagg before looking further into the very suspicious character of Napa. His murkiness was only to deepen when in October 1992, some three months after Rachel's murder, Napa was reported as stalking a civilian member of staff at Plumstead Police Station. 
The subsequent investigation resulted in a search of his property where police recovered a nasty little arsenal, including a 2-2 pistol and over 200 rounds of ammunition, and a crossbow with half a dozen bolts. There were notebooks and notes on the A to Z, which is a map of London. The notes contained information about restraining someone, including using cling film on their legs, and the map was marked with coded symbols. Despite this evidence, Napper was given an eight-week custodial sentence. The psychiatric assessment stated that he posed an imminent threat to himself and others. After the case was concluded, any further information, information which could have shown the police the depth of planning and premeditation Napper was putting into his criminal activities, was simply dismissed and not followed up. Even after his fingerprint was found in a tin buried on Wynn's Common, a tin that contained a Luger pistol, police did not interview him. Fingerprints, as circumstantial evidence go, are generally quite good, but they can be ruled out, which is why they need investigating when they turn up in crime scenes. More and more evidence was put forward from the rapes and the suspicious activity of Robert Knapper himself. In July of 1993, he was reported to have been seen peeping on a young woman who was known to walk around semi-nude at home. A policeman was sent to investigate and spoke with Knapper, even noting the following, quote, Subject strange, abnormal, should be considered a possible rapist indecency-type suspect, end quote. All the while this was happening, police were still solely focused on Colin Stagg and he was about to be placed into an identity parade in relation to the Green Chain rapes. But when it was found that there was no match between Stagg and the rapist, his attendance was no longer required. And amazingly, at this point, the Green Chain Rapist Inquiry seems to have fizzled out, which considering they had the DNA, description of the attacker and knowledge that he was escalating, is absolutely unfathomable. In fact, the inquiry into the Green Chain Rapes had identified more than 106 offences and 86 victims. But it was all just dropped. Colin Stagg was still going through the justice system and had been remanded, that is, held in prison until the trial, when Napper murdered again. This time, like the first rape he admits to committing, he struck a young mother at home. She, like his other victims, was a blonde-haired woman with a happy family and a young child. Police now theorise that Napper had been spying on Samantha Bissett for some time before deciding to advance from watching to killing. He gained access to the happy little family home by knocking on the door. And when Samantha opened the door, he stabbed her so hard with a knife that he severed her spinal cord. He then dragged the young mother into the flat and continued his rage-filled attack. Once he had taken her mother's life, Jasmine became the centre of his attention, where he sexually assaulted her in her own bed before smothering her and leaving her under the cover as if asleep. He then returned to Samantha, 
what followed next was the defining moment of his murderous career. Already having taken to posing the victim to enhance the sexual horror of the acts he was committing, Napa now strode fully into Ripper territory. He spent a long time in the peace and quiet of a house without disturbance. He cut Samantha from her pubis to her throat, then opened her ribcage to reveal her internal organs. He tried to dismember her by removing her legs, but failed, so the mutilation continued. He inflicted gross injuries to her genitals and removed a part of her abdomen as a trophy. He posed her in a parody of the sexual positions it is speculated that he had witnessed Samantha and her partner, Conrad Ellum, engaging in. Despite this careful posing for maximum shock effect, Napa then placed her bathrobe over her, as well as a duvet. That's a curious behaviour, but it did save her partner from witnessing the full extent of the horror inflicted upon her. Such were her injuries that the police photographer documenting the scene was unable to work for two months afterwards. The scene was forensically rich, comparatively. There was a footprint, or at least the impression of a shoe, and a fingerprint found within. But it would take another six months before Napa was finally identified as the slaughterer. His DNA matched in a lot of the green chain rapes too. It would take until 2008 for Napa to be convicted of the murder of Rachel Nichol. Colin Stagg got some compensation, which wasn't a small sum, but doesn't really make up for the dreadful injustice done to him. An escalating psychopath hunting blonde women in London with a knife. Tall, too. Napper, it seems, would be the most logical of suspects. But we must be wary of awarding ourselves master's degrees in hindsightology at this point. Yes, Napper was known to attack women in public, but hadn't committed an attack on the streets per se. Rather, he utilised the shaded footpaths on open areas or the homes of the victims. And so initially, there's a minor discrepancy with M.O., but there's also a discrepancy in victim types. Jean was not a young woman, although she certainly was not old, and appears to have had the kind of bearing that might be considered matronly or motherlike. She seems to not match his victim type. We also cannot say for certain that had the brave fella in the van not stopped to intervene, that Napa, if it were him, would have continued the attack and posed or possibly sexually assaulted Jean. All of the witnesses described Jean's attacker as being six to six foot three, and none of them described the man as walking with a stoop. Obviously, the possibility that due to the highly unusual circumstances, Napa lost his stoop for this time is very real. It certainly seems that, although Napa operated primarily in the parks, heaths and commons of London, he was more than capable of entering houses in suburban areas. It doesn't seem that much of a stretch to think that the tracking and stalking he used on the heaths could just as well be used to the same devastating effect in this suburban sprawl of the capital. 
What strikes me most about the killing of these three women is that all of them were murdered in public. Janice was by the side of the road, Penny was in her car, and Jean by the car on the way home from work. They were all respectable and professional women, all in stable families with comfortable futures ahead. When violent men they may or may not have known brutalised them in public and managed to escape, capture and evade justice. The sheer audacity of the attacks is a deeply concerning feature of them all. The indifference from passers-by leaves a very unpleasant taste. All of the families have suffered from the loss of their mothers and partners. Nicholas Osborne, speaking some years ago, spoke about the utterly devastating consequences of the loss of Jean. They had been planning to marry, and Jean was his life. When murderers strike, the resultant shockwave from their vile actions spreads out across the lives of those closest to the victim, then their families, and then their friends, and onward and outward. Sometimes the horror is enough to touch the nation. Police currently have no plans to interview Napa about the murder of Jean Bradley, which is frustrating and understandable. What is frustrating is that the man most likely to have committed this atrocity refuses to answer any questions without forensic evidence to back up the accusation. Thankfully, he's confined for the rest of his natural, and in those years that he has left, there may be another tin buried out there on the heath, or in a park, or in a common, that has the evidence necessary to conclusively prove that Robert Knapper is responsible. Until that time, we must consider that the murderer is still at large. If you have any information about this man, who is described as six feet to six feet three, with a gaunt face, and on the night in question was wearing a three-quarter length parka, dark trousers, and a black zoester, although it could have been a fly-fishing hat too, or if you remember finding a knife in a black plastic bag with gold printing on it, or if you found a knife in the ground in any of the parks that make up the green chain, please call the police on 101 and ask for the Jean Bradley Cold Case Unit or Crime Stoppers on 0800-555-111. Thank you for listening. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you like the show, please leave a rating or a review on your podcast provider. All of them help to get more people to hear these cases. And hopefully, together, we can catch a murderer. If you would like to financially help support the show please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash podcast. 
You can join in with conversations about the show or the episodes, get updates and see the new merchandise available on our Facebook page by visiting Facebook slash Still at Large Podcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.